um, sick, cough, spluttery, snotty. And uh, I realized that when you have one of those headset mics and you cough and you sneeze, it just can't even turn away. So anyway, I'm not going to subject you to the sounds of my nose. Have you ever totally overreacted to something? Totally overreacted to something? Or have you ever been on the receiving end of someone who's totally overreacted? Yeah? Those of you who are parents of toddlers, like every day. Well, in 2012, uh, during elections in the U.S., the state of Wisconsin, uh, one of those states you never hear about, apparently they had an election in 2012, uh, husband... Jeffrey Radel, who is a supporter of the Republican Party, was married to his wife, Amanda Radel, who happens to support, you guessed it, the Democratic Party. Now, Republican-Democrat in some places in the U.S. is much more than just Labor v. Liberal, okay? Just imagine in this household, it was probably like someone who supported the Greens and the other person supports Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Okay. They obviously were having issues with that and were at odds, and election came up. Now, that in itself would have been a problem, but it's the kind of thing that happens in some marriages. But what happened in 2012 on election day was that Jeffrey Radel felt, felt so strongly that his wife Amanda should not vote for the Democrat, uh, Democratic candidate that as she got in the car to drive to the polling booth that morning, he decided that he would try to stop her by putting himself in front of the car. And at that point, Amanda decided to do something that every good wife would do in that situation, and she ran him over. Now, he ended up in hospital, not because she called the ambulance, she just kept driving to the polling booth and voted for the Democrat. He ended up in hospital. They eventually got divorced. Quite the overreaction, right? Now, we just read Numbers chapter 20, and maybe you even uh, did it during community groups this, uh, this week. And if you felt reading chapter 20, then it may be, maybe God overreacted a little. Then you wouldn't be the only one. I mean, how many of you also felt like Moses got the short end of the stick, the straw? I mean, what, what, what did Moses do here that was so bad? so severe that this man of God, the prophet of God, the greatest prophet so far, the leader of God's people, God's own friend and intimate, what did he do that was so bad that would disqualify him from leading the people finally into the promised land? Is this a case where God majorly overreacted? Well, we're going to look at this passage in a little bit more detail. Just a little hint, when you come up with tensions in the Bible, uh, like what we're coming up with here, and it's just like, why is this happening? Does this really make sense? I have a problem with that. That's a good thing. Don't avoid the difficult questions. Because when you come to difficult questions, what you want to do is you want to dig deeper. You want to look more closely. Because as you look more closely... That's often when you find out things that you wouldn't otherwise have realized. That's what we're going to do today. As we look more closely, we're going to realize stuff about God and His character that I don't think Moses even realized. And it's something that we all need to learn today. So let me pray and then we'll get right into the passage. Father God, help me even as I um, uh, splutter through my cold, that you would help me to be clear that in this afternoon, where it's a little bit cold, 
and people might be feeling tired from a big weekend. Father, would you help us to listen? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be speaking directly into the hearts of every single person here so that we might come to treasure and cherish Jesus more. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Numbers. And uh, the book of Numbers really is the story of how God brings his people into the promised land. So the the book of Numbers begins where the book of Exodus ends off. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. At the end of Exodus, they're at the, 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 the mountain of the Lord, Sinai, where he officially makes them his people, gives them his law. Numbers picks off where Exodus leaves off and takes them to the promised land so that they can have all that God has promised them. Now, we've seen so far the numbers, um, there's a really big turning point. And that happened two weeks ago when John preached to us in chapters 13 and 14. The big turning point in numbers was that at they, as they got to the border, the edge of the land, and they're just about to go in and conquer and get everything that God has promised them, they fail miserably. They fail to trust God. They're freaked out by the inhabitants. They don't go in. They rebel against God. And as a consequence, God punishes the people who fail to trust Him with 40 years. Right? 40 extra years. It, it would have taken them 11 days from Sinai into the Promised Land. It takes them 40 years wandering around in the wilderness until that whole first generation that came out of Egypt die off because they didn't trust Him. Right? Every person over the age of 20 who exited Egypt would not see the land. And they all perished in the desert except two people. Now, Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 that we read earlier, Derek read earlier, says it's the first month. Now, it's a bit vague. First month of what? It's actually the first month of, guess what? The new generation. So we fast forwarded between chapter 19 and 20, 40 years. 40 years have now passed. And where they are is uh, in verse 1, Kadesh. The the place Kadesh is again back on the edge of the promised land. Right? Where they were 40 years ago when they failed to enter, they were back here. But now it's a new generation. Now this chapter, chapter 20, if we read all the way through, you'll realize it's a little bit of the Infinity War chapter of Numbers. Everyone dies. Okay. Sorry, did I? Spoiler alert. Everyone dies. Okay. So the chapter begins with Miriam's death. Miriam, who is Moses' sister and the most senior female leader, she dies. It's going to end in chapter 20 with whose death? Aaron's death. Moses' brother and the great high priest. And in the middle that we read here, Moses is going to be doomed to die himself and not enter the land. This is a pretty depressing chapter, the Infinity War chapter. Everyone, as God says, of that Exodus generation, except Joshua and Caleb, Everyone will die, as God has said, including these three prominent leaders. So this is very significant. Okay, so here we go. I've got three points for you. First point on your outlines. Um, We read earlier, what this chapter is, seems to be one of the many grumbling episodes, stories of their desert time. So um, if you've got your Bibles, please just quickly flip back to chapter 11. Chapter 11, first three verses, I'll read it again, but chapter 11 really sets out the pattern of the grumbling. Because again and again, we see these kind of things happen. So in chapter 11, 1 to 3, you're going to get this pattern. Um, Israel, the people will complain or grumble. God is going to get angry and He's going to judge them. But then Moses is going to come and speak on their behalf or intercede. And then God is going to turn back from His punishment. 
And then the place they're at often gets a name from that. All right, so that's sort of the pattern of chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. And that pattern we've seen repeated, actually. So in chapter 11, um, they're going to grumble about the manna, the bread from heaven. And that's going to happen. And, and then later on, they're going to grumble in chapters 13 and 14, those key chapters, remember? They're going to grumble about not entering the land because the, the inhabitants are too scary. And then last week, Dom preached to us. They're going to grumble about priests and leaders and why is Moses and Aaron and, 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 the, and the priests the special ones, okay? So grumbling again and again. But here we've got a grumbling story about water. And this grumbling story, again, leads to pretty much near mutiny. They, they want to, you know, they want to rebel against Moses and his leadership. And, 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 and like chapter 16, because of the near mutiny, Moses and Aaron um, come into God's physical presence. So they go to the tent of meeting where God makes himself present among his people. And it's a desperate situation. So once again, they fall flat, face down. And then God's glory comes to, re- to reveal himself to them. And, and God, as you see, responds. And what God responds with is instructions, yeah? He tells Moses how to perform a water miracle. And Moses is to take the staff, which is the one he used to perform miracles in Egypt. He's to go before the people. He's to speak to the rock. And then water would miraculously come out of a rock. And then we read earlier, Moses begins to do that. He gathers the people, he gets the staff, but we read, instead of following God's exact instructions about speaking to the rock, he instead speaks to the people, loses his temper and speaks to the people. And then instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock twice with a staff. Now water still miraculously comes out as we read, but God is unhappy. Yeah. And the consequence of all that at the end of the chapter is what? Moses comes under judgment and he is barred from entering into the land himself. Now you read that, and again, you're asking the question as I was, well, that was bad. I mean, he didn't follow God's instruction, but did God overreact? Was this too harsh of a judgment? Because we feel for Moses, don't we? And you might feel for Moses even more when I show you um, the background to this chapter. So have a look. This is not working. You might need to click on it so I can move it. Okay, look at uh, Exodus 17. As I read Exodus 17, you can follow on the uh, overhead behind me, because this is really the background to this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? You're going to have to do this because it's not working. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? 
Now, you read that, it might be a little bit deja vu-ish, right? It's so similar that, in fact, some scholars think that it's the same incident and that the writers of Exodus and Numbers just made a mistake and did it twice. Um, It's not the same incident. It's clearly a different time, a different location. Even though they're given the same name, there end up being two Meribahs. We know there's a different location because Exodus 17 happens at Horeb or Mount Sinai, and that's the rock that he struck. Numbers 20 happens at Kadesh which is a totally different place. As I said, this is 40 years later. And then also the details are different as well. All right? Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but on the surface, you see, Exodus 17, I I think kind of makes us feel a little bit more for Moses, doesn't it? I mean, Exodus 17, you realize he was told by God to strike the rock for the water miracle, yeah? So maybe Numbers 20, yes, he lost his temper. He didn't do exactly what God has said. But maybe... it was muscle memory, right? He struck the rock because he'd done it before, and so it had precedence, the striking of the rock. So given that, why didn't God give him a little bit more slack? Why, didn't, why did God treat him so harshly because of it? Now, it could be that Numbers 20 is showing us that God is holy in that He doesn't tolerate sin, not even a little bit, even when it comes to Moses. Shows no favoritism. Now, that's certainly true of God, that He doesn't tolerate sin, but think about it. In Numbers 20, God seems to tolerate the people's sin. I mean, they're complaining. They're near mutinying. There's no judgment or anger on them. Arguably, that's the biggest sin, right? Well, maybe that we've got a lesson about God expecting more of leaders, Right? The more you're given, the more you're expected. Doesn't um, the book of James in the New Testament tell us that teachers will be judged more strictly? Moses was closest to God, given most responsibility, and therefore was judged even more harshly. Now, certainly that's the case in the Bible, and certainly there's some truth to that here. But again, I wonder if that's all there is to it. So up to my next point. And we're gonna, what we're going to do is keep those questions in the back of our minds, But we're going to delve a little bit deeper and look a little bit more at the details. And you'll see back to Numbers 20 that the key is verse 12, isn't it? The key to what Moses did wrong, God spells out in verse 12. So look there again. Verse 12. God says to Moses, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. The two key things that Moses did wrong has to do with a heart problem and a holiness problem, okay? He lacked trust in his heart. He didn't trust God. And he didn't trust God to honor God as holy. That's the second thing. So we've got to ask the question, in what ways did Moses' actions show up a heart problem, a serious, deep lack of trust in God. Now, we think lack of trust in God is no big deal, but it is because even those key chapters, chapters 13 and 14, when the whole Israelite community rebelled against God, it was because they failed to trust God. Trust in God's word, trust in God's character, trust in God's promises. Failing to trust God is no small matter when the stakes are high. So, in what way did Moses' actions fail to trust God? And in what ways did his actions and what he did fail to uphold God's holiness? That's the second thing, right? Lack of trust, a heart issue. 
failing to uphold God's holiness, the second issue. Now, we've got to remember the context as we think about the details. Because remember, who were the people here in Numbers 20? This was not the old rebellious generation. The generation that had failed again and again and again had actually by now pretty much all perished. This, remember, is the new generation, a fresh generation. This is Moses' first interaction with this new generation. This is the generation of promise. And he said they would enter. In fact, um, the book of Numbers up to now, if you, if you think about it as a graph, and I wasn't good enough to be able to do a graph on, um, on PowerPoint, but um, Numbers up to now has been going downwards, okay? And Numbers 20, as I said, is pretty depressing. It's a bit of like the Infinity War chapter. But actually, from Numbers 20 onwards, until you get to the end of Numbers, things start looking up. So by the end of Numbers, they're really ready to get into the land, and God's promises are ready to be fulfilled. So the new generation is the beginning of the good stuff. Right? That's the context. This is the group of people Moses is dealing with. Not the old generation, not the generation that kept stuffing up again and again and again, but a brand new start generation. And then the other thing to notice is, look how this complaint story, this grumbling story, breaks the pattern. Now, I mentioned the pattern in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, yeah? Remember the pattern was this. Grumbling, complaining, God's judgment, Moses intercedes, judgment turned back. Now, what we've got here is grumbling and complaining, but what doesn't it lead to? It doesn't lead to God's judgment, does it? They grumble and complain, but God doesn't even say He's angry with them. In fact, what God does is the next thing He does is He provides graciously for them. There's no punishment. There's no wrath. There's no anger. He's going to provide water just as they've requested, even though they requested it in a a horrible, grumbling sort of way. But He's gracious to them. There's no punishment. Now, that was also what happened in Exodus. Yeah? Uh, Back to Exodus 17. Can we go back? We don't want to show that one yet. Yeah. Back in Exodus, exactly the same pattern. The people complain, but this is the old generation. They complain. Moses, in fact, fears for his life, but there's no judgment, is there? There's no punishment. There's not even a word of anger from God. You see, neither the first nor the second generation were punished for complaining about water at this point in their lives. In the first generation, it also happened really early on. And here, the second generation complaining, and this is really their first complaint. But neither of them leads to God being angry and God judging. Now, that is really important. Because now let's think about Moses and what he does and what he says. You see, God doesn't judge. God is not furious. But what about Moses? Let's read these verses again. Verse 7, Numbers 20. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring rock out of the water for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. How is Moses? 
feeling. He's pretty angry, isn't he? I mean, he's furious. He is acting and speaking in a way that he feels the people deserved to be spoken to. And that's really uncharacteristic of Moses because up till now, every time the people rebel, even threaten his leadership to his face, we've seen that Moses hasn't taken it personally. He knows that their rebellion is not against him, but against the God who called him into his role. And so every time up till now, he would humbly and meekly turn to God, fall on his face before God, wait for God to make things right. He didn't have to justify himself because God will. But not this time, you see. Not this time. We don't know what's happened in the last 40 years. But this time, Moses speaks as though their offense wasn't ultimately against God, but against him. And it's up to him and Aaron to fix things up now. I mean, you notice his words, must we bring water out of this rock for you guys, you rebels? Now that, that, uh, that verb, the, the verb to bring up, it's actually quite an important one because all throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's the word used of what God does for his people because he brings them up out of Egypt. He carries them on eagle's wings. He brings them out out of slavery, bringing up where God is the subject, the doer of the verb. That's the most common way it's been used. But now Moses is saying, must we bring water out of the rock? And in verse 5, the people actually said, why did you, Moses and Aaron, bring us up out of Egypt? And Moses doesn't disagree with them. He doesn't point to God. No, no, it's God who brings you up, not us. No, no, no. Instead, Moses now puts himself in the place of God, he is the subject of that verb, bringing out, as if he was the one who was to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land and give them water and supply them. And, and the other thing is this, his action of striking the rock, it's not just, as I called it, muscle memory or momentary lapse, not just out of frustration. Um, he doesn't just tap it couple of like times. But the word strike there is a very strong, violent action word. And he does it twice. You know, in, um, in the Hebrew language, uh, how it emphasizes things is often through repetition. So if you want to say something is really dark, you would say something like dark darkness. If you want to say something is holy, you would say holy holiness. So when you strike twice, this is not an accident, but it's deliberate, violent, emphatic. And the verb strike, that word used in the original, is used most often in these chapters of God's action of judgment against his enemies. It's the word used when God struck down the firstborn of Egypt in the plagues of what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt. The older translations would use the word smite. That's the word, smite. Past tense of smite is smote. Such a great word. We should bring that back. I smote him. Um, So, Moses smote that rock twice. <laughs> now, okay, put it all together. What was going on in Moses' heart? Remember, that's the first thing. What, what this is a heart issue. It's not just anger. Yes, he was angry, but he was angry in the way that he thought God should have been angry. That's the key. He was angry enough to want to step into God's shoes to mete out judgment on God's people, to smite judgment. Even though he knew very well from Exodus 17 that God wasn't going to judge his people. He didn't do it in the first generation. He's not going to do it here. Not for this complaint, not now. 
And so that's the problem, you see. It was actually Moses who overreacted. His heart got proud. He failed to let God be God. He wanted to take matters into his own hands. He put himself in God's place. And in so doing, he failed to honor God as holy. The second thing. You see, let's think a little bit more about holiness and God's holiness. Now, holy in the Bible means set apart. Uh, It means to be different, to be distinct. So when God is holy, we're saying He is God. He is not like us. He's different. He's distinct. And God's holiness, we often associate, because of His distinct, with His purity or His perfection. And we often associate it with, therefore, His judgment against sin. Yeah, and that's certainly true. God is holy and different morally. So He's pure. And he can't tolerate sin. But that's not the only way that God's holiness is spoken of, is it? Because how else is God different and distinct to us? Have a look at this next verse. Jared, can you forward? God passed in front of Moses from Exodus 34, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. See, how else is God holy? How else is He different, distinct, not like us? He's not like us in His mercy, in His patience. He's slow to anger. It takes God generations to be truly angry. He's kind. See, whereas Moses wanted to judge, and whereas Moses and we, we feel sympathetic with Moses because who wouldn't be frustrated at this people? We would lose our patience. But God's not like us. God is holy. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. So you see, what should Moses have done if he trusted and upheld God's holiness? He should have trusted God to show mercy. He should have trusted God to be patient. You should have let God be God. And because Moses failed to trust God like that, and instead put himself in the place of God, thinking that, well, now it was all up to him to lead God's people, to bring out God's judgment. Well, God's punishment sort of fits the crime, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds extreme, but Moses wanted to lead God on his own, so God takes away his leadership. Because with that attitude, he wasn't fit to lead God's people in the way that God would lead them. Mercifully, patiently, kindly. You see, God is holy in his mercy. Have you thought about that? See, we're not upholding his holiness when we are angry and bitter and unforgiving when we condemn rather than love, when we exclude rather than embrace, when we are embittered rather than forgive, we might think of ourselves as upholding God's holiness, but we're not. Have a look at the next slide. You guys might uh, have heard of Westboro Baptist, famous group in the U.S. who likes to picket um, soldiers at their funeral with signs like, you're going to hell, um, God is your enemy, God hates you, not blessed, but cur-. and these are the nice signs had to filter out the really bad ones. Now, they think that they're upholding God's holiness in how they're condemning and how angry they are. But they're not, are they? They're not. 
because they haven't represented God in His kindness and mercy and patience at all. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that there will not be a day when all accounts are settled. I'm not saying that God will tolerate evil because there is a judgment day coming. Jesus Himself spoke of that day. But the key is to ask the question, what time is it now? Right now where we're at. Okay, I mean, even in Numbers, God will judge even the second generation, but not the time of Numbers 20. It's always important to ask, what is God's stance towards people's rebellion now? And the period we're in now, we've got to ask ourselves the question, before Judgment Day, what is God's stance towards sinful people? So my final point, and the answer is, of course, the next verse. Have a look at that on the screen. You know it, John 3.16, don't you? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And look here, verse 17 is key. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. You see, what is God's stance towards a sinful and rebellious world right now? Does Westboro Baptist have it right? Or did Jesus' own disciples have it right? Remember in Luke chapter 9, you may, may know this, um, they don't get welcomed into a Samaritan village. Jesus' disciples say, shall we call down fire from heaven and blast them out of the... And Jesus rebukes them. Or when Jesus is arrested, you remember Simon Peter, his chief disciple, decides to get a sword and cut off the servant's ear. I mean, that's a sort of... Moses, Westboro Baptist sort of reaction. Is that what God is doing right now? Smiting? Destroying? Judging? No, says John 3. God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And John 3, 16, where it says, God so loved the world, it's not saying God's love is so big because the world is so big. I mean, that's certainly true. There's a lot of people in the world and He loves the world. No, no. In John, the world is always the world in rebellion against God. The world that's turned its back on God. The world that's chosen darkness instead of light. And so when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, God's love is so great, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. God so loved that world, this world, our bad, bad world. And yet, He's compassionate and gracious in His love. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And so you look at Jesus and you ask, did Jesus call down fire from heaven on His enemies? Did Jesus take up a sword to strike the people who were going to come and arrest Him? No, He didn't. Did Jesus curse and condemn? Would Jesus have held up signs saying, God hates you? Quite the opposite, isn't it? Jesus rather than strike others, allows himself to be struck. Many times, and ultimately on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 10, don't turn to it, but it actually says that Jesus is the rock. In reference to Numbers 20 and Exodus 17, these two rock water miracles, Jesus is the rock from which we drink. Jesus is the spiritual rock that provides for us the living waters from which we drink. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that works. But you put it together, something really interesting happens because on the cross, you remember, as Jesus allowed Himself to be struck, Jesus the rock, 
And in John's gospel, he's struck, and not just struck, he's pierced with a spear. And remember when he's pierced in his side, what happens? Blood and water flow out. Living water from the side of Jesus, the rock. The rock is struck on our behalf. Right? Jesus doesn't take Moses' stance and strikes. He allows himself to be struck so that we could drink from his side the living water and be saved. And so God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that now is the day of salvation. You want to know what time we're living in? Now is the day of salvation. Until Jesus comes again to judge, God's stance towards sinners is like the father in Jesus' parable of the lost sons. You remember that? He is waiting and he is watching and he is yearning and he is inviting and he is loving and he can't wait for his sons and daughters to turn back to him. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. That is God's holiness in his mercy. And you see, maybe that is the good news that you need to trust in today for yourself. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you need to remember that God isn't like you and me, and he isn't like anyone you know. He's holy in his mercy. No matter what you've done, no matter how far away you think you've walked, no matter how many times you've rejected him so far, now is still the day of salvation. You need to believe that, don't you? That he wants you back. And you don't have to be afraid to come to him. Because Jesus died in your place on the cross, allowed himself to be struck for you, so that you have a guarantee that God's face is turned towards you in holy mercy and love and not in holy anger. That's your guarantee, Jesus. Or maybe this is good news that you need to trust in for someone else today. Because there might be someone in your life you've given up on. You even stop praying for them as expectantly and hopefully. Just don't think it's ever going to happen that they're going to come to God. Maybe you've distanced yourself away from them and it just hurts too much to see them go that way. You've withdrawn a little. Maybe you've come to believe that there's just no hope. Well, friends, now is still the day of salvation. And God is unlike you and He is unlike me. And He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is still inviting. And He still wants them back. And guess what? He wants to use you. And He wants to use me. And He wants to use us at Southwest Bankstown. But He wants to use us not as an instrument of His judgment, like Moses wanted to that day. No, no, he wants to use us as instruments of his mercy. So will you do that? Right? Don't you give up on them. Don't you stop praying for them. Don't you stop loving them. Don't you stop speaking to them the good news of Jesus. Don't you stop inviting them and hoping for them. Because our Father in heaven is holy in his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we think of those here, or those that we love and are concerned with, those who think they might be just a little too far gone. We thank you for your holiness, that you are different to us in your mercy. Help us not make the same mistake as Moses. Help us instead to take the stance of Jesus towards sinners. 
to know that he was struck for us, to know that today is the day of salvation, to know that hope is never too far gone. Help us to turn back to you, Lord. Help us to seek for others to turn back to you no matter what. Amen.